Hello, and thank you for tuning in once again to ReptileApartment.com's The Reptile Living Room. It's been a crazy month. Uh, did a lot of guest posting for Toronto Pet Daily last month and uh, this coming month as well. In case you missed it, we did some guest posting also for National Geographic Museum blog.org as well, and there will be some more guest posting on their website as well. Uh, once again, today, as always, we are brought to you by ComicKarma.com your comic book journey destination. Give Mike a tumble in case you haven't checked him out already. He's given a lot of reviews at uh, Discount Comic Book Service or DCBS.com, I believe it is, as well as Majorspoilers.com. Mike's just a really honest guy that just throws out his opinion on what's going on in the industry, what's happening, uh, what's not happening, the artists, the writers, just... Everything about his website is just awesome. You just need to check him out at ComicKarma.com, your comic book journey destination. So this week we interviewed uh, Scott Pally of Pally Exotics, and he talks to us about the captive care of green tree pythons, which in my opinion is one of the apex species to keep in captivity. And I personally never kept one um, in the home. Uh, worked with them a lot in the pet industry and different uh, various pet shops and things of that nature. I always viewed them as hard to keep, as most people do, and Scott really reveals for us that they're really not that hard to keep. You can, you know, the average keeper can probably keep one, and there's a lot of different things happening within the green tree python industry. So, without further ado, here's Scott Pally from Pally Exotic Reptiles on the green tree python. I'm on the phone today with uh, Scott Pally from Pally uh, Exotic Reptiles. And, uh, Scott, we actually met at uh, one of the shows and was talking, and we were talking to you about the green tree pythons. Okay, sure. So, w- how did you get involved in reptiles? And you know what, actually, uh, as a kid, I had asthma, and I still have asthma, and uh, I kind of have a lot of furry pets, so I actually oh, okay. started working with snakes, okay. and uh, kind of fell to the wayside once I was in high school and college, mm-hmm. but when I got married, I kind of got back into it. Wow, very nice. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of where it is today. Okay. Now, uh, what was the first reptile species that you ever kept? You know, probably when I was a kid, it was more California species. The, okay. Your typical California king, uh, gopher snake, um, those types of animals, lizards and things like that, blue bellies. Mm-hmm. So when right. I had a red-tailed boa, probably that was the extent of uh, having reptiles back then. Okay. And how did you uh, start out breeding reptiles? To. You know, um, I actually, uh, I met someone, I was kind of intrigued that he was breeding, and uh, I kind of started, like everyone else, doing corn snakes, doing a lot of the colubrids, and that you know, was probably close to 10 years ago now. Wow, no kidding. So when I started breeding the colubrids, and uh, a couple friends that I'd met during, uh, you know, on the way with reptiles, Dan Grubb, uh, John Michaels, they, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we all kind of bred similar things, so we kind of became a group and started bringing some of the, uh, the colubrids. Okay. <clears throat> Very nice. Now, uh, what made you, uh, as far as the green tree pythons are concerned, what what was the driving factor that pulled you into the green tree python realm? Because that's a, uh, like I was talking to you at the show, that's like an apex species. It's like you don't even go near that species <laughs> unless you know absolutely what you're doing. And, you know, so the guys that like yourself that take care of that are able to work with that species or just, you know, on a very high pedestal. How did you get involved with the green trees at all? You know, um, I think, again, it was something back when I was a kid. Um, there was a James Bond movie called The Spy Who Loved Me, and it was actually an emble tree boa 
<laughs> and, and I was really always intrigued with that snake and uh, the green tree pythons, similar in a way. Right. And uh, actually, when I got married, we were on our honeymoon, and uh, I was reading The Complete Chondro, uh, and uh, I had a green tree, and I said, hey, I want to breed these, and that was probably eight years ago. Wow. And then I had success my uh, second year of breeding them, and uh, kind of everything that I've purchased uh, on the way has kind of paid for itself from other breeding projects, and... Uh, got to the position where I am now, like 10, 8 years later. Wow. Okay. So, but yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the more difficult snakes to produce, and it's more on a professional end because you don't know what the babies are going to turn out like. Right. you got to really work with reputable breeders in the sense that um, you got to be trusting where, where this animal truly came from. Right, exactly. different kind of than other snakes because you see a visual animal right away versus green tree pythons. It's going to take at least 18 months to 24 months before that uh, visual animal um, starts to change from their either their red face or their yellow face. Right, right. Now, um, as far as breeding is concerned, what were now what other species are you breeding besides? I know we're I was kind of focused on the green trees, but uh, what kind of other stuff do you breed currently? You know, I'm I got when I first started with colubrids, I fell in love with this. Uh, an Asian rat snake. It's called the Mandarin rat snake. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, it was kind of one of my biggest purchases back then, and I produced them, and um, I still work with a lot of the Asian rat snakes. So I work with the Mandarins, the Conspiculata, which is very similar to the Mandarin. It's called a Japanese forest rat snake. Okay. I also work with some of the uh, rhino rats, uh, uh, cocci, and a variety of the different type of uh, old world rat snakes. Oh wow! Yeah, I'm very familiar with the mandarin rat snakes. Sure. They're actually one of my, one of my favorite colubrids. Yeah, actually. I mean it really is a showstopper when people see them. Yeah, they're just amazed how you know how contrasted they are with the red, excuse me, with the yellow and black. Right, right. And uh, yeah, typically I'm actually cooling all of those Asian rat snakes right now. We actually have a wine cellar in our house, and we're cooling all the uh, all those animals. And we're also cycling the green tree pythons as well in a different room. Oh, wow. So you have two separate rooms for colubrids. And yeah, the we have two separate rooms. One is, it's a pretty big-sized room. It's probably, you know, 10 by 15, and it's actually zoned as a wine, so it's got its own sink. And, wow. Um, I just, I hated following my winters since I'm in Southern California. Sometimes, you know, it got warm in the wintertime. Right. And with the wine cellar, I can keep them constant at a certain temperature. And it's been real successful breeding a lot of those uh, colubrids that need to get real cold, so worked out in our favor in that sense. Very nice. Now, what were some of the early issues that you ran into as far as breeding is concerned? Uh, first things, breeding. Um, I would think, well, with colubrids, you know, I was really concerned with incubation, and I don't know if it was really a downfall, but you don't have to be too concerned with uh, colubrid eggs. I mean, there's a certain range. They can fluctuate. Okay. Versus green tree pythons, they cannot fluctuate, you know, very, very small amount. Right. If any, um, green tree pythons are definitely a lot more difficult. You have to have a high humidity, but keep the, the eggs completely dry. Mm-hmm. And uh, you've got to have a very good incubator, too, so it keeps it at a constant temperature. Um, so that's an investment when you start working with green trees. you got to make sure you have a, some type of incubator that will keep it at a range of 86 to 88 degrees. Okay. Um, but getting the eggs wet, those are some of the downfalls. Uh, going full term and uh, the animal's dead in the egg, 
the disappointments when you only have one shot a year. Right. And or some mistake you made, you left the uh, egg crate open a little bit and the eggs dried out, whatever the case may be with some of the uh, the green tree pythons. Okay. Clubids are pretty hard to mess up. Um, you know, don't want to get them too wet or too dry, but besides that, they're, they'll pretty much hatch anywhere. Oh, okay. Now, um, as far as the green trees, because um, I noticed um, some people are starting to crossbreed the green trees. Yeah, I've seen that with uh, with some of the um, carpet pythons. Right, right. What are your thoughts on that? Because I know, you know there's some, you know, somebody... Some of them, you know, I, I guess there's a place for it. I, it's not an interest I have, but, you know, okay. um, I deal with designers, so you could say my localities are crossed. So, you know, if, if someone enjoys that and... Um, there's some nice looking animals that come and, mm -hmm. uh, from that crossing and um, some of these guys are doing a lot of work to create 75% green trees or 75% carpets so it's kind of interesting what they're doing okay very good now what's uh, in your opinion what's the hardest thing about being successful in the reptile industry uh, consistency <laughs> and uh, wow there was no thought in that yeah you know it's just <laughs> it, it, it gets burned out sometimes because 90% of this hobby is cleaning right and just keep it on top of cleaning making sure fresh water mm -hmm. you know some feeding and people typically overfeed so um i feed on a regular basis but it's everyone enjoys feeding for the most part yeah so just cleaning the cages and keeping them up checking the animals with your we have a lot of equipment these days with you know checking the temperature of the animal the cage right you need to do that on a regular basis and uh you know get some type of flow going so uh, uh, you can continue because you do get burned out. I mean, every every guy that I know or gal that you know, there's a point. Guy got to clean cages again. Yeah. And uh, it's it's kind of par for the course. <laughs> right. Now, as far as um, the green trees are concerned, you know, a lot of people see these as uh, as myself as you know. Oh my gosh, that's the you know expensive designer snakes. You know, I'll never get there. That kind of thing. But it seems like you're. You've kind of got, um, from talking to you anyway, you've kind of got that feel uh, during conversations that I've had with you in the past of, you know, really it's an everyman snake. It's just a matter of how much work you want to put into it kind of thing. Yeah, you know, a lot of people think they're, you know, all aggressive snakes. Right, right. You know, there can be aggressive uh, green tree pythons, but it's just like any other snake. Um, for the most part, they're pretty mellow. They're not really a holding snake. They're more a visual animal. Right. Um, there's a certain locale that's known to be a little more aggressive some, than some of the other localities, um, but not to say that locality always is aggressive either. Right. Um, if you do the proper cage setup, which is pretty well understood now, mm -hmm. um, they're really not that difficult. Uh, it, it's the typical mistakes. People make the overfeed. They keep it too wet. Um, it's more simple than people really think. I think sometimes people spend... They over-elaborate on it, and it really doesn't need quite the extent that some people go to and make it seem how difficult these animals are to, to keep in captivity. Okay. You know, once they're set up, you spray them once a week. You know, if, before they go into the shed, make sure they're very hydrated. Oh. Keep their water dish clean and keep their cage clean. You know, put them on a feeding schedule, and uh, you're pretty much good to go at that point. Now, that's um, something I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned it a couple times during our conversation tonight. Um, what type of feeding schedule? Because I, um, I know exactly what you're talking about as far as the overfeeding, but 
just for our listeners and stuff like that that aren't as familiar with the green trees, what kind of feeding schedule would you recommend to someone, say, that's new you to know, the if, hobby? If, if they're adults, mm-hmm. I feed males every 10 days. I'll feed females every week. Okay. Um, and I feed them small meals, and I only feed them mice. Um, there's been some, oh, at least within the forum, there's been some research, and um, people felt that uh, mice have more, um, not as much fat as rat pups. Okay. And as an adult, it seems like some of the uh, animals that have been on mice will actually uh, show more uh, response to breeding because they're not as overweight, oh, et cetera, wow. et cetera. So a lot of the breeders that I know um, typically will feed mice. But there's other individuals that feed either or, you know, on a rat diet. So, okay. Uh, but back to your question, I'll, I'll feed the females usually once a week a small meal. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on how big the female is, I'll either give her one or two mice. I usually bulk her up before the, uh, the winter time, so it might go to every five days. Uh, males typically, like I said, every ten days. If they're babies, I feed them like every five to seven days. Um, usually small pinks, again, they're real delicate at that age, so mm-hmm. some of the neos I don't want to overfeed, but I definitely want to give them a schedule of feeding. Um, same thing with the yearlings, probably, you know, every five to seven days. Um, but I, I try never to go over that, and usually it's small meals if I'm feeding them every five days. It's not a large meal for them. It's kind of like us, you know, we're supposed to eat more small meals than right. versus, you know, one big large meal. Right, uh, and, and that's typical of all snakes, um, at least in my, my opinion. Oh, okay. Um, you know, feed them more small meals versus a lot of big meals. Right, right, because it's pretty much like the how they find it in the wild. You know, they'll take what they can yeah, get. Yeah, I mean, you think in the wild, these animals aren't getting fed every week. Right. Days, you know, it's just when food comes across. I mean, they may have two meals in a week, not, then not eat for two months. So um, I think if you get them on a regular schedule, and you can watch, too, if they start to look like they're, you know, that's the observation and being kind of a, taking the initiative to see, hey, the snake's starting to get, you know, it looks like it's getting too filled out. Mm-hmm. You know, cut it back, you know. You don't have to feed it if, if it seems like it's gaining too much weight too rapidly. Right. I keep an eye on the animals, too, to see how they're, uh, you know, even the neos and the uh, the yearlings, you know, if they're starting to slow and start to look a little more unawkward, I'll, I'll cut back their meals and slow, slow them out. Oh, okay. Very cool. Now, as far as um, the morphs and stuff like that and the locality differences, what are some of the major differences between the green trees uh, as far as morphs are concerned that people are working with now? You know, there's all, there's the blues, there's the melanistics, there's the tricolor calicos, the high yellows, the lemon tree. I mean, the list goes on and on. Really? And, okay. and, And it's different than breeding your typical... You know, albino or hypo right. or different crosses. It's really different in the sense that it's not that that precise in green tree pythons. Oh wow! It's always always kind of a mixing of colors versus uh, with the genetics versus something being het for this or het for that. Right. Um, a lot of people are trying to. My big thing right now. I'm trying to do yellow melanistic. I'd love to create a yellow snake with a lot of black in it. Wow. And some of my other uh, friends uh, that are breeders as well with green trees um, said, hey, that would be real cool. Yeah. Uh, but the, the hot ones, you know, the blues, you know, super blues. Right. The melanistics, the high yellows. Um, some of those animals can, you know, fetch a, a pretty penny. Oh, yeah. So. I'm sure. All right. Well, um, Scott, I appreciate your time. And uh, before I let you go, I wanted to uh, give a shout-out to your website, 
Um, now that's PallyExoticReptiles.com? That's correct. Okay. And you have, I think the last one went there, you had pretty much the full list of all your animals on there that were for sale. Correct. Yeah, we're we'll probably going to be updating it this week at the end of November. Oh, okay. 2010, so. Oh, very cool. Some new additions and uh, some new items that uh, are added to the collection in the recent months. Oh, very cool. And then we will be also in Pomona. That's what I was just going to ask yeah, you. When is your next show going to be? Um, <laughs> I don't know what the dates are. Let's see, I have it right here. I think it's in January at some point. Yeah, it's 8th and 9th. January 8th and 9th, okay. And Pomona. Cool. So we'll definitely be there. I'll bring some of my um, yearling animals I have still left from a pairing that, uh, that's turned out to be really cool. So I'll bring some of those animals to the show. Oh, very nice. All right. Well, uh, once again, Scott, I appreciate your time. And so there you have it. That was Scott Pally from PallyExoticReptiles.com. Uh, once again, like you said, he's going to be at the show in Pomona in January. I believe it's 8th and 9th. So definitely stop by his booth, check him out. Um, if you don't get a chance to go to the show, you can always go to his website, PallyExotics.com. And once again, leave us some comments on the blog at uh, ReptileApartment.com. Let, let us know what you think of the uh, Reptile Living Room podcast. And uh, catch up on some of the episodes if in case you missed out on any. Next week we are going to speak with Mark Romanski from Moonstone Dragons. We're going to talk to him about bearded dragons, uh, breeding bearded dragons, how to take care of them properly in captivity. So once again, don't miss it out. Uh, every Friday, reptileapartment.com's The Reptile Living Room. Thank you. Mm-hmm.